0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. If I was their
1: manager, if I'm their leader, and I'm saying, you know, you're a really good fisherman, dolphin and eagle. You're a really good fisherman. And because you're such a good fisherman, eagle, you're so good at spreading your wings, flying out on your own and being being on your own and doing that. I want you to train dolphin how to hunt like you. And Dolphin, mm. because you're so good in working with your team and with your pod, what I want to do is I want you to teach the eagle to hunt like you. We're never going to have excellence in that. All we're going to do, strangers, is we're going to kill two perfectly good creatures. But yet, in organizations, we make that mistake every day. You use the Tom Brady example. Never, ever, ever would we take the center on a football team, right? right? The one that's that's guarding, uh, guarding the quarterback and the wide receiver who runs down the field to catch the passes from the quarterback. We would never, ever say, hey, you know what? Let's go ahead and switch you two today so you can be (laughs) well-rounded, right? And expect great things. But yet, in organizations, we do this all the time, even though we have the tools available to identify where our own talents are and to really think about it through that lens. The whole thing, though, is we don't pause long enough in organizations to focus on that. We don't pause long enough and ask the question, what's our human development strategy? And here's the news for so many folks. We've asked this many times in rooms full of CEOs and the cricket responses are, are, are pretty telling. Simple question is, do you have a human development strategy? And that's like, what do we? I don't know. And the the answer to that, Serena, is if you think you have a human development strategy or you think you don't have a human development strategy, you have one. And you can choose to have your culture in your organization show up intentionally and purposefully by design, or you can do that accidentally. And accidentally is never, never, ever going to get you to the results that you want to have. It takes work. It takes work and it takes commitment. And the process does matter in getting there. As Vince Lombardi, since we're talking about football, the final quote that I'll, I'll leave you with on this, this piece here is, I believe Vince Lombardi once said, the man on the top of the mountain did not just land there.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at UnmistakableCreative.com. Darren, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Thank you so much, Srini. Uh, Truly a pleasure to be here. I'm excited.
0: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I was actually introduced to you by way of Mike Michalowicz, who's a former guest on The Unmistakable Creative. And... uh, you know, I think that for me, my, my default filter for whether I say yes or no to anybody is, is there something about this person that makes me curious? I think obviously the fact that you were of Indian descent made me immediately relate to you. But uh, there was much more there, which, you know, obviously we will get into. But before we do, I want to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up and what impact did where you grew up end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career?
1: Yeah, that that's that's a great question, Srini. So I did grow up. I was born and raised in the United States. I actually grew up in California. I was born in Minneapolis. Uh, the funny backstory from that is my parents are from British Guyana, down on the tip of South America. So I, I have this Caribbean West Indian cultural descent. You know, grew up listening to a lot of reggae and soca music and those different sorts of elements. My parents kept that very richly alive. And we're actually continuing it on with the next generation with my two kids. But what was fascinating was my dad went from British Guyana to the University of Minneapolis. He actually got a scholarship to go to school there. So he started there in October. Now, Srini, you're, you're familiar with how cold Minneapolis gets. <laughs> yeah. And for a guy coming from the Caribbean where maybe it got to a low of you know 68, 67 degrees somewhere in that range to go to Minneapolis in the middle of October. That, w- that was quite a journey. Uh, so they went to, he, he, went to school there. My mom and him were married in the, in the West Indies down in British Guyana before they left. And uh, what ended up happening is I was born, I think two years into his schooling there. And uh, what, what ended up happening was about two years later, they graduated and they had some really good friends from Minneapolis that came out to California, to Northern California, San Francisco Bay Area. And those friends told them, hey, uh, Carl, it's December. Leela, it's December. And guess what? The sun's out. You can actually still go outside. You don't need a shovel to get around. That's all it took, Srini. So they they made that move. And truth be told, I don't have any memory of Minneapolis. Uh, I left there, I think, when I was about two years old. Uh So that was that was uh, was kind of where I grew up, and then I ended up migrating to the Sacramento area when I went to university in when I was about eighteen or so, but grew up in the in the Bay Area. I want to make sure I answer the second part of your question. That's yeah. a little bit of the backstory to where I was at. Can you repeat that second yeah, part yeah
0: well, I mean, of the, what the impact question? did uh, growing up in the Bay Area have on your life?
1: Yeah, so th- there's a couple things. So with that as my foundation. One of the things that was really interesting for me growing up, Srini, was wherever I was, I never really had a tribe to fit into. I, I, I was always, I, I wasn't, so from an ethnic standpoint, I wasn't fully Indian because I couldn't speak Hindi. I couldn't speak any other languages. It was just English. I, I, I wasn't, I, I didn't identify necessarily with, uh, you know, a, a local race group or, or, or something like that or, uh, a, a localized identity. I was just, a kid, and I had to kind of navigate through that process on my own and what it did is that was actually one of the greatest gifts that I got because it, it it helped me to not just establish into a tribe because there wasn't a large you know tribe, if you will that had experienced growing up with a family that was of Indian descent but from the caribbean i didn't mm-hmm. have i couldn't just go and connect with, with, with everybody uh, with that background. There was such a small group of us uh, for, from around that space. So that was one of the greatest gifts that I feel like I had in my childhood because it, it just put me in a place, Rini, where I just had to connect with other people and learn to appreciate all sorts of different cultures. My neighbors growing up, were uh, Italian. So I, I feel like I'm a surrogate Italian in some ways with, with some of the things <laughs> I learned about cooking, about culture, the way that they celebrate different things. I had great friends that were Irish, great friends that were uh, uh, from, uh, from different nations in Africa from uh, and of African American descent uh, that I was able to connect with Mexicans just from all over the world because the melting pot that is the Bay Area, I was able to really jump into that and, and, and embrace that. And I might not have understood it at the time growing up, but I feel like that's really played into where my life journey has taken me in, in, into the focus that I have now on and really focusing on organizational culture and creating culture because mm. it's been rooted in me into my core story. And, you know, un- until I was asked this question, I've thought about this on a high level, but I haven't really had the privilege of articulating it this way. So I, I appreciate you asking yeah. that question. It's 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 really had a guiding hand in in shaping where my life has gone.
0: Right. So we'll actually get to the work that you do with organizational culture. Uh, I, -hmm. I wonder, this is just out of personal curiosity, uh, are Indian parents that are of Caribbean descent like yours, are they the same as Indian parents that are of, you know, like native to India, like mine with, you know, the ridiculously high expectations of becoming doctors, engineers, and lawyers? Uh, Because right when you started saying, you know, listening to reggae, I'm trying to imagine like a a group, two Indian parents, (laughs) like, you know, jamming to like Bob Marley and smoking a joint. And so I'm curious what my misperceptions are about this um, and and how those two to differ based on what you 've witnessed
1: so I can say truthfully, my parents have not fall, don't fall into that 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 traditional vein that you 've talked about within Indian parents. That being said, there's definitely elements of it that i 've seen alive uh, yeah. within the culture from around, around different places that, that have fallen into some of those, those traditional places. I, I have definitely witnessed that with other family members. I think my parents, one of the big things that was different for them was because they came to California, they had actually removed themselves you know, from a lot of uh, being engulfed in that culture. When they came out here, in many ways, they were pioneers there was only a handful of West Indians from all different islands, whether it was from Guyana, from Trinidad, from Barbados, right? There, there was a handful of them. And and that, I mean, my, my dad connected with a lot of them because he played cricket. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with that, yeah. right, Srini? So he, he played cricket and he helped actually start one of the, one of the uh, cricket organizations up here, the Northern California uh, Cricket Association. I think that's what it's called uh, up, up here in Northern California. And that was a way to connect with the connect with, connected with other West Indians, other folks from India, Pakistan, just anybody that loved, 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 loved the game of cricket. But it did kind of bring, bring out those elements. So I was, I've, I've seen sprinkles of that through different areas with family, with friends, but I haven't seen it with, uh, it quite, quite the level that you, you you described.
0: Yeah. I I wonder, um, you know, being uh, of West Indian descent, do you guys identify more as being from the Caribbean or more as, as being Indian? Because it's funny to hear you say this, given that the Bay area has so many damn Indians. Like you just go to, you you go to, all you have to do is go to Costco in Sunnyvale on a Saturday morning. And that becomes extremely apparent so much so that the Costco in Sunnyvale apparently sells all sorts of Indian food.
1: (laughs) Right so that's a that's a great question, and I would say I identify with both i I can say I'm a West Indian of indian descent
2: so okay. that,
1: that's the the descent is there, but there's culturally there's definitely some similarities, some different elements that have been kept alive in the culture, the food definitely, and that's the beauty of the Caribbean. You have this melding of of african of chinese, of Portuguese. And, and of Indians. So you have these, I mean, food-wise, it's so rich, right? So you have these rice dishes that are made that have African elements and Indian elements. And then, you know, Jamaica, a lot of people don't know this, but one of their, their big dishes in Jamaica is goat curry. It's a huge, huge dish that's there. And anybody, no matter what their racial background, can make you killer goat curry a lot of times. And that's that's just a staple. And, 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 and that melding has, has created this, this blend, this hybrid. But so I identify definitely as, as both, even though, you know, I, I definitely am, I'm of Indian descent.
0: Yeah. So uh, we, you know, when you, we talk about tradition, right. Uh, and I, I think it, it's, it's a, it, uh, on my mind, obviously, because my sister just got married and that, that I watched, you know, two sure. uh, Indians from different parts of India uh, bring <laughs> multiple traditions together as we were just talking about before we hit record here. Uh, right. And I, I wonder You know, one, what are the differences in traditions between people from, you know, West India? Like, what are traditions that you guys have that I may not be aware of? And then also, um, you know, you mentioned earlier that you're passing on, you know, certain traditions like music and, and other things to your kids. Like, you know, what do you preserve from a previous generation? And just out of curiosity, this is one other one. And this is something I've always wondered is your wife of Indian descent? And if not, how do you decide, like, how do you preserve both cultures at the same time?
1: So I'll start with the first question. No, my wife is actually not of uh, not of Indian descent. She's she's Caucasian. She Mm -hmm. was born and raised here in uh, in California. So we are a mixed race couple. Uh, In terms of moving back from that, preserving different elements. So with culture, there's there are a lot of similarities. I think I think. Indians culturally love the process of celebrating would you agree with that based on the, yeah, I mean based oh, yeah, on what I be- that we were talking about there yeah Srini, there, there's there's a big big focus on celebration that's a huge part of what uh, of Caribbean culture just uh-huh. to, whether you're from Guyana from Trinidad from any of the any of the countries celebrating is important right so celebrating spending time those those family ties and those connections are still very very strong. And I feel like that's had a hand in guiding me What what we were talking about before we, we got the show started was just the importance of those in-person connections, making time for the human connection. That is a critical part of culture in in the Caribbean and in, in the West Indies. So uh-huh. th- th- those are some of the areas where they're similar. Now, some of the areas where they're different is, you know, musically, we're talking about this. Right. You're, you're going to see pieces where there's there's a blending of, soka and calypso music and, and Indian music so there are lyrics that are sung songs that are sung with in, in Hindi right they're sung in Hindi but then they have soka elements they have reggae elements they have have these different different musical elements that are there the other thing that you see a lot of as well and i grew up with this in my background is a lot of times you will see indians getting married or indians and you know at, folks of African descent getting married. And what, what you will see sometimes is a blending of religious traditions. Uh-huh. So what I've seen in my family, for instance, like my dad was raised Catholic. Now his dad was Catholic and his mom was Hindu. He was raised Catholic, but he was very aware of the Hindu traditions. And my mom is Hindu. So mm-hmm. I was raised in, in a house where both of those religions coexisted. And I've seen that in many different households throughout the Caribbean. So yeah. it was it was still a matter of, hey, you can go through your own spiritual process, however it is that, that you get to that. I was raised Catholic. I, 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 I believe in, in God, and, but I've had a lot of respect for many different elements, because I've also seen what one one family member has uh he is Catholic and then his wife is muslim and i've seen that in many different not only in my own family but in in many different communities uh throughout and that's that's pretty commonplace mm-hmm. uh, and and pretty standard in in the process and on the festival side you know you you one other question you asked was how am I keeping it alive for the next generation yeah. i'll tell you how we're keeping it alive one of the things that we try to do Srini, is periodically. Pretty much every year, my my whole family, so that's my parents, my siblings and I, my wife, my kids, uh, we even have extended family sometimes, we try to, every summer, get away for about a week and a half, two weeks. We've typically been going to an island. A lot of times it's been just different places in the Caribbean. Now, this last year, we had the privilege of going back to Barbados. And I went there, and it was an incredible trip, literally... Three weeks after I graduated from college. And I spent about a month, month and a half in Barbados and Trinidad just by myself, soaking up the culture, making new friends. This year when we went, or in 2018 when we went back this last summer, we had the privilege of being there at a time when what's called a Cropover Festival was taking place, which is kind of like their version of Carnival. We were able to take my children. Now, keep in mind, I have a six-year-old daughter. I have a three-year-old son. Uh, He wasn't quite three at the time yet, but we were able to take them to some huge cultural events that were going on. They had like kids carnival. So they were able to see the music, see the dancing, see the kids of this other uh, culture in Barbados that they're not exposed to every day. And the kids just loved it. They were able to go to the Calypso uh, competitions where, where, where they were competing. The best artists from the island of Barbados were competing to, to win the national national basically anthem for the 2018 crop over a carnival year. And we were able to go to one of those competitions. They were up in the stands, Srini, and they were dancing. They were moving. I was sitting there moving to the beat. As, as, I, as you know, I'm a musician as well. So I'm sitting there moving to the groove, loving it. And I'm sitting there right alongside my daughter and my son. And they are dancing. They're having a great time. They didn't even want to leave. And we were able to just expose them to so much of that. My daughter comes home now and she wants to put on music and you'll find that she's wanting to listen to some of the same music that I loved when I was growing up uh, that she doesn't hear necessarily out out in public as frequently, but she loves a lot of that. So those are those are ways yeah. that we've done it. We've just tried to take them and expose mm-hmm. them, not forcing their hand, taking them, Going out when we're in these countries, we travel like locals. We, we've gotten on the bus in Barbados, traveled with the locals on the bus, and I've, I've had some really incredible experiences through the eyes of my children just on riding a local bus in another country. Uh-huh. It's phenomenal.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny. We're talking about celebration. I remember as I was texting, you know, videos and and photos to uh, my old business partner, Brian of the wedding, he was like, dude, he said, from watching this, I really hope you marry an Indian girl. This looks like a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, he said, not that you need any more pressure, which I I was kind of like, yeah, it is, we, we, you know, it is definitely a big, uh, you know, occasion for celebration and, and, you know, a really rich in, in culture. Sure. One thing I wonder, um, is for your wife, what has the experience been like of coming into a family of Indian descent when she's of Caucasian descent? And the reason I'm, I'm asking this, I don't know if you've ever read the namesake or seen the movie. I have uh, not. Okay, so the premise of it is, is basically uh, it's about a young Indian American boy grows up, you know, the the son of two Bengali parents. And one of the things, one of the scenes that really struck me in that movie was that, you know, he brings home a, a white girl to his house and he explains to her is like no touching, no kissing, like, you know, none of these things. She calls his parents by first name. Like you can see they're just mortified by this. Right. And, you know, like I, it's funny because, you know, I, I think my, my parents would never question, you know, me bringing anybody of any ethnicity home. But I feel like if I told an Indian girl, by the way, I know we've been dating for six months, but you have to sleep in another room when we go to my parents' house for the first time, she'd be like, yeah, okay okay. But if I told a girl who didn't quite understand that was the case, I wonder how she'd react. So I I wonder, you know, from your wife's perspective, what is it like to come into a culture of, uh, another culture?
1: You know, she has, that's a great question. Uh, she has actually really loved the process. She has, she's loved it. She was able to understand and appreciate and respect that just out of the gate. Now there, there was things now. Keep in mind, like my parents were okay with, hey, when they first met my wife, about being called by their their first name. So that what there were certain hurdles that, that you described there that yeah. maybe they weren't as hurdles that I had to clear per se, but she has loved the process of integrating. Cause one of the things that she's actually really enjoyed about my family is the fact that we are we're transparent. We're transparent, Shrini. It, we're authentic with each other. And, you know, you're, sometimes you're going to love what somebody says. Sometimes you're not. But bottom line is there's always a safe space to just be you, to, to, to be yourself and to put those, those cards on the table. And she's, she's really appreciated that because sometimes culturally growing up, she didn't necessarily see that. And she's really, she's really taken to that. So she has actually bonded incredibly well with my family. I, I, I mean, truth be told, Trini, I think sometimes. My folks and, and my, my family, they're far more excited to see my wife and my kids than they are me. And, and you know, they're like, hey, we get to see Darren. But what we're really excited about is, is seeing Lisa and Kira and Preston and, and, the, and the family uh, yeah. because she's made that bond and, and she has joined into that incredibly well. She's really embraced the process of the culture. And I'll never forget the first time that we traveled to the Caribbean together on our own. Well, the first time that we traveled to the Caribbean together was actually for our honeymoon. And that was to St. Lucia. We had traveled together many other places, but we hadn't had a chance to go to the Caribbean together. We'd gone to Hawaii a few times, gone to many places throughout the, the US, but hadn't done that. And I vividly remember when we got there, after our first day or two there, we talked. And she said, you know, Hawaii is amazing. I love Hawaii, as do I. She looked at me and she goes, Darren, I get it now. This makes so much sense. The Just the slight nuances and the difference in culture, the connections that she was making, even, even to just the folks at the resort and, and that deeper connection on the human level that is so, so important and, and so stitched into my culture. It was like taking her there, she was able to connect with me and understand me and us, therefore, in a different way. So she has actually really embraced the process of making sure that the kids are raised with a strong sense of their cultural connection. She's been a big advocate for that as well. Not to mention she en- enjoys, you know, sipping rum punch by the beach uh, <laughs> if, we, if we are getting to the, to the West Indies. And, and yeah. you know, sometimes I sneak away and do some scuba diving and whatnot. But uh, she's, she's really enjoyed the process with the kids. Yeah, it's and, funny. And seeing that and integrating
0: yeah. it's funny because I always tell any girl that I'm dating, if she's not Indian, I was like, you know, one thing you're guaranteed is an amazing couple of meals at my house if you happen to meet my parents.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh,
0: so, uh, you know, I, I want to get to your work, but I think I want to get about it in a, in a way that probably is not normal, which at this point you should be used to. Uh, yeah. So, you know, you've had this, this background of, you know, Integrating multiple cultures, you know, between you know marrying somebody who's not of Indian descent, growing up in the Bay Area, uh, moving around, and I wonder how all of that has shaped and influenced the work that you do with organizations. And I guess probably we could start by you know really kind of you telling us what is it uh, that you do with organizations.
1: Yeah. So our team at Thirty Four Strong, what we do is we help to create great places to work, and it's not us, Sereni, that are the change agents, so to speak. It's actually those organizations. It's their leaders. It's their ability to embrace that process and to own it. So we really step in and, and high level. We believe that, you know, every, every employee and every person deserves a great place to work and that any workplace can be great. But we don't see, we don't say every, we say any workplace can be great because any one of them has the potential to do it, but it does take some work. There's a process that goes into that. And that that's a big part of what it is. It, it's the shift from focusing on this weakness orientation of our greatest opportunity for growth as an organization, as individuals, and as a team lies in our space of weakness. And it's shifting that to what happens when we actually focus on our areas of strength and invest in that. A, the, the A grade that we get that, you know, our, our parents really wanted us to get, right, Sereni? We, we had to get those A's, bring home those A's on the report card. Those might not be. The end all be all that a plus might just be showing the start of potential. And a lot of times in society, we've, we've come to looking at our areas of strengths through the lens of that's it. I've already, I'm already really strong there. I can't get any better. But the real, real question is maybe that's just the start of your greatness. Maybe there's a whole nother level of your genius that can expand. So we help individuals within organizations do that and to align those teams around a place to strengths. Mm -hmm. Coming back to your question about how my backstory has really tied into culture, I believe as I've thought about this, this whole story, this melding of cultures that I've gone into, I've kind of just as I've walked through life, my journey of life, I feel like I've constantly had to be a chameleon or constantly had to go through the metamorphosis process of adapting to different cultures. Because even though I had this strong foundation at home and this really strong, intimate home environment growing up with my family, when I stepped outside, I was guided into many, many different areas. So that foundation was always strong and it helped guide certain values that I wanted to make sure that I could move forward with. But one of those key values, Srini, was Stepping into a place of valuing and respecting different cultures, and trying to help uh, help connect the importance of culture to getting us in our organizations where we want to be. Uh-huh. And the big picture within this, Serena is I, I I I don't say this lightly. In my work life, I've I had the privilege to serve in organizations under absolutely amazing and incredible leadership. I also had the privilege to serve under highly dysfunctional, terrible leadership. And there was a period of my life where I served under both of those at the exact same time in two different roles that I I, I was holding. The reason why both of those extremes were a gift was because it helped me connect the dots for myself. Yeah. We spend so much of our time at work. We spend so much time there in in doing what, what it is that, That we do for some people to make a difference, or I'm sorry, to make a living. I aspire to make a difference. I think you aspire to make a difference. I I don't look at it as just making a living. That's another conversation. But for many folks that are going to work, they're spending so much time there. And if they are going to work and they're not being valued for being valuable, they're not being valuable or valued for what they are unmistakably, right? What their signature actually is and the true contributions they can make. And they're having the life sucked out of them every single day at work. How do they show up at home, screening? Are they showing up as the best of themselves? No, they're not. So they're coming home as a spouse, as a friend, as a son, as a daughter, as a parent. And they're not in their best version of themselves. That next generation might see, this is the way that work has to be. It has to be completely miserable. I have to have the life sucked out of me. I can't feel strong about who I am. I can't even be myself because that's not going to be valued. And what starts to happen is that transitions down the line for generations in a way that's not beneficial. In fact, that's, that's, what, that's what's happened. But when we reshape that and we really think about that and the importance of culture in creating a space where people can feel safe for being who they are and showing up strong and that being valued, and being confidently vulnerable, right? this also ties into the power of vulnerability, knowing exactly who we are and who we aren't. There's going to be certain things that I know I don't do well, but my gosh, I'm, I'm glad Srini's on my team because he's going to be able to cover areas that I can't do very well. But the real focus here and the part that really resonated for me on a personal level and for my business partner from a value standpoint that comes right back to my upbringing was the the importance of How are we creating impact and making a difference for generations to come? Mm -hmm. And if parents can go home as a better version of themselves, what hope do they provide to their children? What are their children going to be like when they have a mom or dad that's not showing up completely disengaged or, or showing up from a job where they're completely disengaged and then having to turn on the, hey, I care about you, son, daughter, but I've got all this baggage that I'm carrying. What happens when they show up and they're feeling empowered and strong from their work? How are they gonna show up as a parent? How are they gonna show up in their communities in the other areas that they focus? And and, and as a spouse, as a friend. What's the, what's the impact of that over time?
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better. Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
0: couple of things that come to mind as I was hearing you say that uh, you know naturally the first one is why do we have so many people who hate their jobs so much if this is the case and we know this the other one is related to something that I wrote uh, yesterday which was about this idea that you know the things we can't measure aren't always or the things that we can measure aren't always the ac- the most accurate predictors of success you know so for example Google apparently had a rule in place where in order to be an associate program manager you had to have a computer science degree and one of their employees who wanted to be an associate program manager could not get the job because of the fact that he didn't have a computer science degree. And that guy's name was Kevin right. Systrom. Uh, that was a billion-dollar loss on their part because of rules. And they recognized that. They were smart enough to say, okay, you know what? We just missed out on something huge here. Um Right. You know, you're welcome, Kevin, is what they wrote about in you know in the book. <laughs> um, but, you know, especially as somebody who went to an elite school myself and, and you know, didn't do well, didn't have the scores or test scores um, and had been written off numerous times as lazy, unmotivated, many of the characteristics that you can't have if you do many of the things that I've done. Uh, so, I, you know, I wonder, you know, from an organizational culture standpoint, why is it that we tend to look at the things that we can measure as our primary uh You know, filters for whether somebody will be successful. Like, why are we judging their future based on past metrics?
1: That's, wow, that's a great question. And so often, what happens is number one, we're looking at past metrics, but we're not actually identifying each person's unique natural patterns of thought, feeling, and behavior that can be productively applied. And our talents can show up in ways. That we're gonna miss when we're just checking the box of, you know, do they have they had this degree? Have they gone to this class? Well, what what do we know, Serena? If you and I went to the exact same class and we sat through the exact same class, there would be certain elements of that class that really stood out to you and you made certain connections, that would be totally different than what I experienced. But what happens when we've put everything into this box? We've actually engineered out the unique elements. That allow people to really shine. I loved, I I love to give this analogy. You're familiar, and and I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with the Golden Gate Bridge, right? right? So the Golden Gate Bridge, when we envision that, the the, the two red towers in San Francisco, that, that it's the gateway to coming into the San Francisco Bay. And it's like many, many other suspension bridges, but there's the two towers. And those towers are supported from cables that are actually pulling in different Directions, the strength doesn't come to that bridge, and the reason it stands is not because those cables are pulling in the same direction all the same, checking all of the same boxes. It actually comes because there's a healthy amount of tension that's pulling up that bridge it's bringing the strength to it in much the same way, organizations can find a lot of strength when they go beyond just the traditional boxes. That we have to check when they, they're able to step into, well, what is this person's real contributions? To your point, Shrini, sometimes people's contributions are not what they can get crossed off a task list, but we're in such an execution centric culture and so many of our, our organizations, we're looking for what are these results? Uh, and I realize that results do matter, but the process sometimes matters incredibly in getting to those results. And there's people that are going to contribute to the process, sometimes not by what they say outwardly, but by the fact that they leave that meeting and they go and take a walk and they stare at the blue sky. And that's where they're doing their mulling and their thinking and connecting the dots. But sometimes we don't value that. Sometimes we don't value the fact that within team dynamics, when there is pushing and there's pulling, that there's going to be that one person who might not be contributing as much on the thought and the vision, but they contribute incredibly in helping to create a safe environment so ideas can flow. And that's, those are the areas that we overlook, and then we get to the box-checking mm-hmm. process. We haven't looked beyond that, and, and, and that's where the process of, of really becoming a great place to work is helping to identify what are these differences in our natural patterns of thought, feeling, and behavior. That can be productively implied, so that people can actually show up engaged to their work, so they can be confident in where they shine, Srini, and confident in where they're blind, and own that equally because they know that others on their team can have their back.
0: Yeah, you know it's it's interesting because uh, I started this piece that I was just referring with the story of Tom Brady, who you know was like 199 picked in the sixth round. Sure, and. You know, on the first day of practice at the New England Patriots, he literally walked up to Bob Kraft as the fourth string quarterback who was probably not likely to play at all and said, my name is Tom Brady. And Mr. Bob Kraft said, I know who you are. He said, I'm going to be the best decision you've ever made. And what's interesting is that all the people who went in the draft before him, uh, one of them had had won an NCAA championship. I mean, they were superstars in college and they did terrible in the NFL. Sure. Uh, and then, you know, but the thing is that there was a, a section where Tom Brady's college coach at Michigan had actually, uh, I remember in this documentary, uh, he said, you know, he said he when the Patriots called him, he said, you will never regret drafting this guy because he had been responsible for a number of like, you know, uh, late game comebacks, which you know, sure. uh, you know, two years ago right. Super Bowl. That was pretty clear evidence of that. Um, uh, but you know, it just struck me that there were so often, you know, these moments where we overlook these things. Uh, I wonder how you avoid the cognitive of biases that cause you to overlook the potential in somebody like a Tom Brady?
1: Yeah. So one, one of the tools that we use is the Clifton Strengths Finder. And basically what that is, is an inventory of talent. It's an it, it's an assessment. It's not a personality assessment. It gets lumped in with personality profile tools. But what it actually is, Serena, is it helps to identify each person's unique talent. And, and there's a ranked order. What, what ended up happening as the research was done on it? many, many years ago, what happened, uh, Dr. Donald Clifton asked the question of what'll happen when we focus on what's right with people instead of fixate on what's wrong with them. He committed his whole life to studying how talent exists in us. And again, we define talent as our natural patterns of thought, feeling, and behavior that can be productively applied. But what ended up happening was he studied many, many people, studied millions of people for about a decade. And what emerged was there was these 34 different buckets, these 34 themes that, that were called of talent that naturally exist in a ranked order for all of us. So when we're really taking this into account and looking at this, it really starts with the one key trait that all of the best leaders have. And that, and that key trait is not that they were all visionaries, they were all influencers, they were all great at connecting with, with people or, or getting things done. The one trait that all of the best leaders on the planet have had is the fact that they are self-aware. They know exactly who they are and who they're not. And when they know exactly who they're not, they're able to actually fill in around them those people that can step in and cover their blind spots. It helps to engineer out the cognitive bias. Now, this process doesn't take place overnight. It's actually getting people to the place of understanding, hey, these, these are the areas where I really shine and these are the areas where I'm really blind, And I'm okay with owning that. So owning that cycle can take a bit of time, but it starts to remove some of the cognitive biases that we can start to have because we can start seeing each other, starting to see people through the lens of talent and really having an understanding of what that means. Not just, hey, they were talented, they got A's in their accounting classes. That's not what it's about. But they got they really have an understanding of, uh, of being able to ask all of those why questions to create clarity and boil things down to their facts this person naturally takes psychological ownership of what they say they will do mm-hmm. that's a whole different way of thinking about and seeing people through that lens and we're able to disseminate that through through this process great place to start. Yeah.
0: So given this background, I I have to ask you this question, uh, because I, I just had a personal curiosity. So like, if you've done any research on me, you know that I've been fired from every single job I've ever had, which is why I don't have a job. And I wonder, based on your perspective, why do you think that was the case? Like, what do you think was the cause of that?
1: I would would think, well, number one, you've clearly shown you are an entrepreneur by all all stretches of the imagination and for you to have been successful in different roles i imagine you would have need to have been given a place where you could be at least entrepreneurial within a job that you had where you had the chance to be a disruptor had the chance to think about things differently to shake things up to ideate to reinvent because if you don't have that laboratory and that place to really tap into your own creativity, yeah. and you're just being forced to be uh, to fit into a box, you're never going to be in a place where you could thrive. Think about this for just a second. Great analogy, right? You'll it, it, an eagle and a dolphin. They're both great fishermen, right? They're both great fishermen. And th- this this analogy actually comes out from uh, from a book called Destination Unstoppable by an author named Maureen Monty. She is absolutely incredible, but the the story that she tells in there is that both can be really good fishermen. But what will happen is we can never ever have a dolphin learn to hunt fish like an eagle, right? It's never going to learn to fly. And imagine an eagle will never learn to hunt in a pod like a dolphin. So if I was their manager, if I'm their leader, and I'm saying, you know, you're a really good fisherman, Dolphin. And Eagle, you're a really good fisherman. And because you're such a good fisherman, Eagle, you're so good at spreading your wings, flying out on your own and being being on your own and doing that. I want you to train Dolphin how to hunt like you. And Dolphin, because you're so good in working with your team and with your pod, what I want to do is I want you to teach the Eagle to hunt like you. We're never going to have excellence in that. All we're going to do is we're going to kill two perfectly good creatures. But yet, in organizations, we make that mistake every day. You use the Tom Brady example. Never, ever, ever would we take the center on a football team, right? right. The one that's that's guarding, uh, guarding the quarterback and the wide receiver who runs down the field to catch the passes from the quarterback. We would never ever say, Hey, you know what? Let's go ahead and switch you two today so you could be <laughs> well rounded, right? and expect great things. But yet, in organizations, we do this all the time, even though we have the tools available to identify where our own talents are, and to really think about it through that lens. The whole thing, though, is we don't pause long enough in organizations to focus on that. We don't pause long enough and ask the question, what's our human development strategy? And here's the news for so many folks. We've asked this many times in rooms full of CEOs, and the cricket responses are, are, are pretty telling simple question is, do you have a human development strategy? And that's like, do we? I don't know. And the the answer to that, Serena, is if you think you have a human development strategy or you think you don't have a human development strategy, you have one. And you can choose to have your culture in your organization show up intentionally and purposefully by design, or you can do that accidentally. And accidentally is never, never, ever going to get you to the results that you want to have. It takes work. It takes work, and it takes commitment, and the process does matter in getting there. As Vince Lombardi, since we're talking about football, the final quote that I'll I'll leave you with on this this piece here is, I believe Vince Lombardi once said, the man on the top of the mountain did not just land there.
0: Hmm. Wow. So earlier in our conversation, you alluded to the fact that you had worked for Mm -hmm. highly dysfunctional leaders and the polar opposite of that. And I wonder, you know, what are the different, you know, what are the differences between those two groups and how do you develop the self-awareness to know where you might be dysfunctional? Cause I, I can honestly tell you just from having this conversation, I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm probably a dysfunctional leader in some areas, uh, when it comes to running, pe- you know, our team at the unmistakable creative. So how do I know what those areas are? Because I'd imagine nobody is functional, like hundred percent across the board.
1: Not at all. That's that's exactly what it is. There's going to be areas that we really thrive, and there's going to be there's going to be things that we do as leaders where we're pushing the buttons of of other people. But to answer the the, the question from the cultural piece within an organization, it's really you know one one of the things that's really telling is employee engagement in 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 the United States, right? And we've made a lot of progress in this space, but right now about 65% of the United States workforce, according to Gallup, is disengaged in some capacity. So they're either disengaged or they're actively disengaged, right? And actively disengaged, Srini, these are the folks that are cave dwellers. They're consistently against virtually everything, right? They are, they are misery loves company. They're recruiting for people to become disengaged. They walk down the hallway, they bump into an air molecule with their finger, they're injured, they're gonna be out for four months. That's what active disengagement looks like, and it costs our economy incredibly and and organizations incredibly. And then your engaged employees are the ones that are going to show up on the extra mile. Those are going to be the ones that are committed to the process, committed to the organization, the purpose, the different elements of that. So how do we spot these things? Well, you will see the cultures of toxicity when there isn't high levels of trust, right? When expectations aren't clear. When you are on a team and you know that you can't trust your teammates when there's not a feeling of camaraderie. One, one of the engagement statements that, that's on many, many different engagement uh, metrics that, that are looked at is, you know, I have a friend at work or I have a best friend at work. Doesn't mean your best friend's at work, but a lot of times people are far more willing to show up to work and to play hard when they have team members that they feel like there's some sort of a friendship and a bond and, and a connection with. So just the process of taking the, the Clifton Strengths Finder is a way to open the eyes to start understanding some of those areas and, and where our blind spots might lie. It does give you some perspective as well on different types of people that you might partner with to really make that, make, make you really shine in your areas and, and what kinds of teams you can really shine on. At the core of really functional organizations and engaged teams, and a focus for leaders when we're thinking about culture is a simple African proverb. It's at the core of what we do, and and, and it's something that I've really come to live by on a a highly personal level. And it's simply this. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with others. And if we're thinking about culture like that, and we're thinking about our teams through that lens, we're giving permission to the fact that, hey, we're not always going to see eye to eye, but we're in a place where we can trust each other we're in a place where we can grow together and where we can have each other's back. And we serve us as an organization. We serve us as a team so we can serve others because the impact and the purpose of what we're focused on matters that much. So the question is not, how can we afford to do this? It's how can we afford not to do this? Wow.
0: Wow. Uh, so I have one other question around this. Uh, you know, you're looking at this from a human standpoint and obviously we're in this really interesting phase in terms of, uh, just, you know, technological innovation and progress that is going to get faster and faster. I mean, you know, I don't know how close we are in age, but there was a time when, you know, it used to take hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars to do something as simple as build a website, which now you can do with the push of a few buttons. And we're moving more and more towards this idea of automation. So, you know, where that is in play, like, you know, from your perspective, what are the skills that are going to be most prized and most valuable in the future? And what is the future of work actually going to look like?
1: So the future of work is going to look like, so I'm going I'm to answer that through the lens of if you are an employer, what are the things that people are going to be demanding of you? Because of the fact that as you've talked about, the rate of information dissemination has gone at such a viral level and it's going faster and faster. And we have many different sites like glassdoor.com where workplaces are being rated. You know, so it, it used to be that you could have your dirty laundry as an organization and you could sweep that under the carpet and people wouldn't know. And what's happening now is with the advent of social media, with the way that things have taken off, employers and organizations their feet are being held to the fire. So from a talent standpoint, to attract the best talent, to make sure that the best talent is going to, to be able to stand within organizations, there's a big shift. We've gotten away from the era of the golden handcuffs, and there's there's been far more of a shift in employee motivations to get the best talent to show up. And one of those things is there's been a huge movement from a culture of paycheck and golden handcuffs to one of purpose. Now, I'm not at all insinuating that paycheck doesn't matter, but we have to have a strong foundation in our values and in our purpose as well. If not, organizations are going to be stuck in that revolving door. So to become that workplace of the future, that's a big part of the shift that has to take place. You can't just check the box like we were talking about earlier. People are wanting their leaders, their managers to be less of just a boss of barking orders at me and moving to a place of being a, you know more of a coach. I'm reminded of one of the most profound impacts that I had in my life when I, I think of where things have rippled was my, my years in high school as a track and cross-country athlete. And my track coach, there was time, Srini, in the process I absolutely didn't like at all. The grind that we were being put through. I've got some just insane stories of what we did with some of the workouts that we did in the rain, some of the pushing that he had taken us through. But he always anchored us to his purpose, which was getting us to a place where he was conditioning our willpower, not for track, for our life. And he told us that you're not going to love the process always, but we could respect the purpose. So there was times I remember going along with elements of what he pushed us through because I was I, I respected his, his flow and where he had gotten me and the, and the impact that he had had with so many others. So when I pivot that back into the answer on the boss to coach piece, it's not to say that employers have to be in a place where as a manager, you're a coach means, hey, we're buddies, we're friends. No, you're going to be helping to tap that potential within that person, but there's a level of respect. And the third component that I really want to mention is there's been a huge shift from a lens of weakness fixation to one of strengths. What are your true strengths? What are the things that you, need, you uniquely bring? So to answer the second part of that question, that's the employer answer from those that are out there looking to get onboarded to companies. The whole piece that we need to focus on, know who you are and know who you're not if you can articulate that these are the unique contributions that I make. I'm a person that's going to show up and be a doer. I'm a person that will be highly visionary. I'm a person that can stay focused. I'm authentic. What are those key words that identify you and that really resonate for you? What is your leadership brand statement? When you think of yourself, what's unmistakably you? And there, there's a process for identifying that. I think we'll have this in the show notes. I invite any of your listeners to go through and do this. It's an exercise that we have. It's called Grind Greatness Genius. And it will help people to at least think about what those three areas are. So grind, Srini, these are the things that you, are, you do in your work and in your life that you have to do that maybe you'd rather consider breaking your ankle than do them. You know, maybe some of the past jobs that you had, maybe that's how you felt. It was just so miserable. Like, why am I doing this? This is terrible. Your greatness are things where you feel strong. These are things that you do. You feel strong, you feel good, and you enjoy doing them. It's not necessarily that you're at that level of genius, but you're, you're really strong at them. You do them well. Now, when you're in your genius zone, this is where you're truly in your flow state you're almost untouchable. It is truly your signature. Maybe it's the fact that, as a person, an example of this might be, you step into a room with 100 people and you only know two of them, you are energized by making sure that you connect with all 100 of them. And you will show up, and that's just how you show up. You might even think, oh, anybody could do this. Anybody could go out and make those connections. And at the end of the day, anybody can't do that. Or maybe Using that exact same example, you're the person that steps in, sees 100 people, you know two of them. You're not going to connect with all 100 people, but those two people that you know, you're going to come out of that, that networking event or whatever it is, and you're going to know them at a much deeper level. There's value in both of those. There's value in both of those, and they can create really, really powerful contributions. So being able to know that is huge. And that exercise that we have that, that, that's a link it will give people the opportunity to pause long enough to reflect on that, whether it's for a career move, whether it's for them as a leader in kind of thinking through that, whether it's for their management style. And it, you can actually even identify, well, if, if it's from a work lens, what's the amount of time that I'm spending in my grind zone? And if I'm spending 80% of my time in my grind zone, can I get that down to maybe 60% or 50%? You're not always going to get away of, of of your grind, but you might be able to move some things off of your grind because there's certain things that you might find as a grind that I might find as an area of greatness. Maybe there's an opportunity for partnership. Maybe there's an opportunity to outsource or maybe you've just been doing something because you've been told to do it, but it's actually not creating any value. You got to pause long enough to take a look in the mirror. And I hope that can be a way for your listeners, no matter where they're at in their lives, that they they can use that.
0: Well, I think that makes a a really fitting uh, place to wrap up our conversation. So I have one last question for you, which I know you've heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I have to go to one of my icons in the world of music that has been a compass for guiding me as I've developed as a musician. I'm a bass player. I still perform around Sacramento pretty regularly. And this bass player had played with Miles Davis. His name is Marcus Miller. And over the years, he once said something that I picked up at a young age that I think has stuck with me. And it's even guided the way and the lens that I look at the world. And that statement was simply this, Renee. It says, in life and in music, you must find your own voice. Because at the end of the day, you have to do you. Nobody can do you. Better than you can do you, so unmistakable to me means finding that own voice and the commitment to pursuing finding that o- your your own voice. You might not even know what that is completely, but the pursuit is a big part of the reward. The journey, Srini, is ultimately the destination, and when we get comfortable with the play with with the state of mind that you never never really will ever arrive, but you can always work on tightening up your version and your own internal brand of unmistakable. One day, one habit, one experience at a time, over the course of your life, you will have lived a life that's completely unmistakable, and you'll have lived a life that was completely worth living on a level that is unfathomable.
2: Mm, Amazing.
0: Well, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. This has been really, really great. And uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything that you're up to?
1: Yes, Reni. So they can find out about me. They can check, check us out at uh, 34strong.com. They can feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, you'll have my name and the, and the spelling. I don't have the nice, simple, short, Indian last name like you, Rao, I have Verasami as mine. So they can, they can see that and they can find me on, on, uh, on LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, all of those different areas. But 34 Strong's uh, where, where to find me
0: and find out about us. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming?